2: It was a grisly discovery. In early 1782, troops on the New York frontier had found over 700 scalps left behind by rampaging Native Americans allied with the British. A Boston newspaper published the shocking report, and it soon spread. But the newspaper was fake. A convincing but fabricated version of a real paper, the Independent Chronicle. It was produced in a Paris printing press by the then ambassador to France, Benjamin Franklin, To gin up anti British sentiment. What you just heard was also fake. Not the story about Benjamin Franklin's hoax newspaper, that really happened. But it wasn't me saying it. That was a deep fake version of my voice cloned by a generative AI program. Many fear that these kinds of tools could be used maliciously to influence upcoming elections in America and around the world. Are those concerns valid? I'm the real, human John Prudeau, or at least I think I am, and this is Checks and Balance from The Economist. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, how will artificial intelligence influence the 2024 election? Countries with a collective population of 4 billion will vote for leaders next year, including America, Britain, India, and Taiwan. There are fears that recent advances in generative artificial intelligence will make voters more vulnerable to deception than ever. But disinformation has long been a problem, well before the age of deepfakes and large language models. How worried do we really need to be about AI's potential to undermine democracy? With me this week to talk about AI and how it might change elections in the future are Idris Kaloon in Washington, D.C. and Charlotte Howard in New York. Idris, how are things with you?
1: They are well. Thank you for asking. I'm very excited. I saw Charlotte earlier this week in New York on a brief visit that I had. So uh, we walked around in the muggy streets, although I hear that there are protests over uh, the fact that You all will have to put your garbage in lidded containers now, I think, catching up to the 19th century.
3: I'd like to note the tone of extreme despair with which Idris recounted his supposed pleasure in seeing me this week. But I'm not going to take it personally. (laughs) I had a lovely time seeing Idris. It's
1: because I was thinking about the garbage.
3: Yes, I agree that New York needs to catch up with the rest of the world. As listeners may or may not know, New York has tons of rats. I spent some time in London this summer and I was so surprised I didn't see any rats. And it seemed impossible to me that a city could exist without rats the size of kittens.
2: We told them you were coming and asked them to hide. <laughs> Good.
3: Yeah, so I guess New York is catching up. We'll see.
2: I'm quite fascinated by New York's inability to gather its rubbish and put it in bins with lids like the rest of the rich world. And so I'm really interested in how this one develops. But that will be for another week. This week we're looking at artificial intelligence and democracy. And I'm excited about this episode for a couple of reasons. Number one, because how artificial intelligence will and won't change the world for the better or worse is one of the great subjects of our time. And also because I think this podcast is going to slightly invert the usual dynamic we have where Idris is somewhat Eeyore-ish, to use a sort of Winnie the Pooh frame of reference, and I tend to be more tiggerish and... Charlotte is maybe wise owl. So Idris often sees the, you know, things that might go wrong uh, can be a little bit pessimistic. Sometimes I'm often irrationally optimistic that things might get better. And Charlotte somewhere in the middle. This week, we're going to invert things a bit because Idris is here, I think, to argue that AI is perhaps not as concerning as you might think when it comes to elections. And I, maybe because my voice was deepfaked in this episode, I'm a little bit more worried about things. But Idris, you and our colleague Arjun did the reporting for this one. So why don't you take it away? Where are we going to start?
1: So the deepfake of you, which we all heard, and I think is is actually quite good, was made by feeding a generative AI algorithm 10 examples of previous John Prito intros, and having it spit something out, which is very believable, and I think only required very, very modest editing to get it into podcast format. What people are worried about, and especially in a place like Taiwan, is if an audio producer with an afternoon can generate a fake john and potentially put you out of a job, what could a nation state that has a very vested interest in the result of a coming presidential election try to do? So that's where we're going to start. Taiwan is picking its president in January 2024. It's going to be the first of a lot of incredibly important elections that year. So Arjun Romani, who worked with me on the piece, spoke with Chihau Yu, uh, who works for a watchdog tracking uh, Chinese disinformation in Taiwan, which is called the Taiwan Information Environment Research Center. Chihao told Arjun what sorts of misinformation the Chinese Communist Party is currently spreading in Taiwan.
0: Recently, we found more and more cases where during important political discussions, the Chinese Communist Party would often amplify narratives that exist in Taiwan's public discourse, uh, amplify those narratives that are already here in Taiwan, but to their benefit. Uh, so narratives in Taiwan that are you know, more pro-PRC, for example, instead of creating their own narratives, we found that... Within the political discussion regarding the Fukushima nuclear wastewater issue, and also in Taiwan's domestic issues, such as shortages of electricity or water or eggs, certainly during important events of Taiwan-US relations, such as when our president Tsai Ing-wen visited the US uh, in April, and also last year when Speaker Pelosi of the US visited Taiwan. Those are all some of the more significant cases where we find the CCP propagating or amplifying narratives that are already here in Taiwan, making it more difficult to uh, address uh, the problem of foreign influence when it combines itself with uh, domestic voices. Okay, let's bring AI into the conversation. How
4: is generative AI going to affect this pattern of disinformation that you've just discussed?
0: So, I think a lot of this is speculation right now for us who are working in the fields. For us, it's a double edged sword. On the one hand, we use machine learning, we use generative AI as uh, our research tool, right? It helps us to better understand these complicated content and environments that we're studying. On the other hand, it can also be abused by these attackers who tries to sway public opinion uh, to their benefit. And because if we're talking about technology, because of the technology detecting these AI-generated content are not that mature yet, we cannot conclusively say that this post is generated by AI or this post is not generated by AI. We cannot do that yet. But machine-generated content has been a part of our information environment forever. Uh, with these new technologies, it's even cheaper for all kinds of different people to generate all kinds of different content, right? From text to image to even videos nowadays and audio as well, right? And all of those generated content can be used for good, but also for bad. It's somewhat worrying for the people who are working in the field. I I think I can safely say that. And some of the qualities that these generative AI, generative content has might also provide us sort of clues into understanding why certain contents are more attractive to people and certain contents are not. When you look at, for example, uh, the text content generated by uh, ChatGPT, for example, you see a lot of times the content is very detailed, right? It contains a lot of details, whether if it's true or not. The way that these generated content speaks to you is very asserted. Uh, It just feels like it reads like it knows what it's talking about. And finally, it's oftentimes very polite and very appropriate. <laughs> All these interesting qualities might make these generated AI, generated content more sort of believable, at least on the surface. The thing I found really
4: interesting about what you just said right here is both the quantity and the, the, the quality of what anyone is able to produce, whether it's um, Chinese state actor, or someone else has, has increased. But at the same time, to your the, your previous point, the method or the technique used by the CCP is is propagating existing narratives, uh, you know ideas that already were percolating and maybe sharing things that have mm-hmm. some element of truth or they 're a matter of judgment rather than something completely fake, like a deep fake audio or video yeah. so given that context, I wonder uh, what are you observing using your your data analysis methods are you Are you seeing an influx of ai generated misinformation? in the information sphere, or is it still just speculation at this
0: point? What are you seeing empirically? The technology for detection is not very mature yet. So we can't conclusively say, you know, how much information that we see is generated by AI. But with the help of these technology, I think that you can definitely generate more convincing content. Uh, One, more difficult for us to detect and to distinguish to just the quantity of it. For example, you know, we're all familiar with the uh, idea of content farm, right? These websites hire random writers to just copy paste or make up articles for clicks, for site visits. Uh, but then now imagine the operators of these websites no longer need, for example, 100 uh, writers. They just start up 100 of these large language models and then they could fire away with, <laughs> it's sort of their wild stream kind of scenario. Um, I've I myself try to make uh, Chat GPT write anti-government propaganda, for example. It's not very convincing yet, but I'm imagining they can get better and better. So that also speaks to necessary uh, safeguards or guardrails about these technologies to prevent them to be being abused. And that's not even talking about the biases that that are built into these technologies and the potential impact or harm that they will do to our cultures, to our societies. So I want to be optimistic, but I also want to be cautious and uh, treat it as a important technology that might have serious social impact.
2: Idris, I could see how if you were running an authoritarian dictatorship, then these large language models would be pretty useful when it comes to generating propaganda. You know, I could imagine if you were Kim Jong-un, say, in North Korea, you could generate a deep fake of Joe Biden announcing that he's going to bomb North Korea and use that to keep your population sort of terrified and cowed and get them to do what you want. But can you outline the case on how this might work within a democracy, and particularly in America, and also maybe talk a little bit about how AI is actually being
1: used now. In the American context, there have been a few examples that people have pointed to about the use of, of generative AI in election ads, some of it intentional, some of it not intentional. So the super PAC supporting Ron DeSantis, much like we did with you, um, deep faked Donald Trump reading one of his tweets. It was a tweet that he had actually written, but uh, had not voiced. And so they did that. They also created a fake image of Donald Trump embracing Anthony Fauci, as well. The RNC has used some of this technology to generate kind of post-apocalyptic wasteland images of what a second Biden presidency would resemble, all of which is probably only getting attention because of the technology that was used in terms of campaign ads and the kinds of things that are said in them. It's not out of the norm. The example that we mention in our long reported piece that is probably most concerning is the attempted sabotage of Paul Vallis' campaign, who was running to be mayor of Chicago, where the day before one of the primary elections, someone posted a defaked audio clip of him sounding incredibly callous about police brutality, which ultimately was not true. It was taken down kind of quickly by Twitter as well before many other people saw it. But that gave people the kind of flavor for how disrupted the next election might be. I will say that there are already all the campaign operatives that we spoke to for this piece are thinking about how to use the advances in in artificial intelligence for campaign purposes. You know, for example, uh, many of you might get political campaign fundraising emails, which genuinely would be improved by being written by a chat GPT. So there is some amount of of kind of productivity enhancement that is being considered, some amount of message testing that will probably be integrated into modern campaigns. So uh, there there are two sides to the story as well.
3: I think that the fear is that generative AI will create more better false propaganda, better targeted to particular voters, because I think it will, right? It will create a higher volume of Fake news and it will be more targeted. And the important question is, what's the impact of that? And so the fear is that it will, of course, influence the outcome of the election. But I think even beyond that, there's a question of how it changes voters' general attitudes. So it's not just actually about um, the impact on a particular election. I think it's almost deeper than that. And I guess I'm in the gloomy camp on this subject because people just become less and less trusting of any information, right? It's not just that they do or don't pay attention to fake news, but they also don't pay attention to real news. And so there's a broader question of what happens when a society at large becomes distrustful and paranoid about everything.
1: Yeah, I think part of my reason for being sanguine is not necessarily, you know, for the most optimistic reasons, is that we we don't live in an Eden-esque environment in which people are relatively trusting of one another to begin with. And there is already tons of misinformation and and the ability to select opinions that corroborate your own rather than seeking out to kind of participating in a genuine marketplace of ideas. And so I think you're right. Generative AI will increase the amount of low quality misinformation that is out there that can arrive at people in decontextualized ways through Twitter and X and meta and whatever there are. But uh, what does that mean in in aggregate? I think it's hard to make the claim that there will be a clear kind of partisan advantage, which is the fear that people have based on their memory of 2016. Um, Although I think reality is a bit complicated there as well. And I think you're right that the net effect that we can predict safely is a decline in social trust for all kinds of things. So I think that people already don't really Trust any text that you present to them. If I say John Prito said this, and I didn't give any any backing for it, you probably wouldn't wouldn't take it that seriously. Voice we're conditioned to believe. Video we're especially conditioned to believe. As you know, scenarios like faked uh, audio and video, if they if they do become pervasive, then people will will start to disbelieve their lying eyes, and that has a problem for aggregate social trust. But social trust is already fairly low. Uh, It's been declining for a while. And although this isn't good, I think that there should be some kind of calibration of how bad we think it's going to be based on the available technology. It's hard to predict, right? Because you have a a technology that's improving in a kind of exponentiating fashion. And uh, against that, you have kind of very, very old human psychological tendencies. And we're trying to predict how the two will interact. And uh, that's definitely going to be a hard enterprise.
2: All right, let's pause there for a moment. We will go back to when disinformation led America towards war in a moment. But first, we need your help. We're carrying out some research to find out what you think of our podcasts so we can keep making them even better. What we want is for some listeners to keep in touch with us here at The Economist via WhatsApp over eight weeks. And we're particularly keen to hear from you if you haven't filled in one of our surveys before. As a token of our thanks, there'll be a small cash incentive too. If you're keen to help out, there'll be a link in the notes for the show wherever you listen to it. For three years, Cuban rebels had been fighting for independence from Spain. America was sympathetic to their cause and anxious to protect trade and investments, but had stopped short of intervening. In January 1898... President William McKinley sent a battleship, the USS Maine, to Havana Harbour just to keep an eye on things. Two weeks passed and nothing much happened. Then, on the night of February 15th, an explosion ripped through the battleship's hull. Flames shot into the sky, and the front part of the Maine was engulfed in a ball of fire. She sank and three-quarters of the crew, around 260 men, perished with her. The next morning, all that could be seen of the USS Maine were spokes of twisted metal protruding above the waterline, a stars and stripes hanging mournfully atop one of the remaining masts. For some, the culprit was clear. Remember the Maine, to hell with Spain, became a rallying cry led by a section of the press. Some papers, particularly the New York Journal, owned by William Randolph Hearst, and Joseph Pulitzer's New York World, had been stoking anti-Spanish sentiment in a bid to boost circulation. It was an example of sensationalist yellow journalism, named after a popular cartoon character that appeared in both papers. War was good for business, and the press had been gleefully reporting Spanish misbehaviour in Cuba even when the journal's war artist in Havana proposed returning home because he lacked subject matter, Hearst supposedly told him, you furnish the pictures and I'll furnish the war. Now that, according to the press, the Spanish had taken American lives, the case for intervening was clear. Soon after, the Spanish-American war began. But there's never been any proof that Spain sank the main. Initial reports said the explosion had taken place on board the ship. A Navy inquiry a month later found that the ship had hit a mine, but couldn't allot blame. Today, many experts think the explosion was accidental, caused by a fire in one of the Maine's coal bunkers. Yellow journalism alone didn't start the Spanish-American War, but it exacerbated an anti-Spanish public mood, and the journals and the world's reporting of events in Cuba, including the sinking of the Maine, made war more likely. The creation and spreading of disinformation isn't news. Charlotte, as that story shows, misinformation's been around for a long time and has sometimes been, or often maybe been, really influential. And so, in a sense, what's new if AIs are able to produce more of it? On the other hand, you could imagine how that story might have gone if the journalists trying to whip up enthusiasm for a war were able to produce a video of the Spanish assaulting the American ship and and blowing it up in the harbor in Havana. It seems to me that that would make a difference. That would be more powerful, but maybe I'm being too gloomy.
3: I don't know. I mean, there are lots of examples of people who have used fake news in the past, including those we revere. I mean, John Adams, as an example, in the 18th century, wrote in his diary about how he would come up with different made-up stories that were designed to undermine British rule. Benjamin Franklin made a fake issue of a real newspaper. Uh, And so this is a time-honored tool, and I guess the question is what the impact is, right? And there are lots of instances, both in history and more recently, where you can see the potential for things going really awry. People may remember, and this is not an issue of AI-generated content, you may remember there was this story, which was obviously fake, about Hillary Clinton being connected to a child abuse ring linked to a pizza restaurant, and that had a real impact. A guy showed up with an AR-15. And so there's a question, both on a grand scale, of the influence on a given election, on an even grander scale about an influence on American political culture, but then there are also specific events that can be precipitated.
1: My takeaway for what the Spanish-American War example tells us about contemporary debates is that it's still true that channels matter and the mainstream media outlets that people rely upon and the elites who transmit messages through them matter a lot. And that's true today as well. And that's part of why I think that the explosion of synthetic messages and and video transmitted through social media will have a negative impact, but maybe not as negative as as people think, because these channel-dependent effects still exist. So the two most consequential episodes of misinformation, disinformation belief in American history since the start of the century was, one, uh, weapons of mass destruction, and that being the pretext for America invading Iraq and destabilizing the region, setting itself back uh, tremendously in terms of international respect, and also financially, and the belief in 2020 that the uh, election was stolen. In both of those instances, there was no deep fake or generative AI to blame for the mass belief that occurred. It was the fact that in 2003, the White House, the Secretary of State, Ambassador to the UN were all saying that Iraq possessed weapons of mass destruction, they had various things that they could show sheets of paper they could point to demonstrating that they were true. And in the case of 2020, Donald Trump simply asserted it to be true. And he said it on Fox News, and he said it in the right places, and, and people believed him. And so does generative AI add a tool to the arsenal? Yes, but it doesn't create a new world in which uh, this kind of deception and mass belief uh, exists. And it's existed for a long time, and it will continue to. And the thing that matters a lot is who is saying it and where it is being said. So I think that's, you know, one of the points we make in the piece is that 2024 probably will have a huge misinformation problem, but it's going to be that the election is going to be stolen again, which I imagine Donald Trump is going to be saying, right? It's going to be that, not uh, chat GPT.
3: So this is where I just find your argument or your point to be really unreassuring, I guess, because you're saying that, and I believe you, that fake news and propaganda that's created by generative AI won't have that big of an impact, but it's largely just because the political system is already so far gone, right? I mean, that Donald Trump, we have a main party political candidate who just lies, And we have a country that's hugely polarized and people don't respond to new information so much as they seek information that reinforces their view. So it's kind of like saying, don't worry that the house is on fire because you built the house on top of an active volcano. I don't really see much to be calm about in that scenario. But what have I missed?
1: You haven't missed much. It's an eeyoreish case for optimism.
3: Come for the analysis of the Spanish American War. Stay for the cheer.
1: <laughs> but uh, misleading narratives are just the lifeblood of political persuasion, right? And so that's the that's the water that we're all swimming in, you know. And maybe this is. Now, now I'm thinking of new analogies on the spot, which is always dangerous, but maybe this is like dropping in a, a sort of new kind of pollutant into the into the water, which is already so saturated that you wonder what, what the aggregate effect is going to be. So I, again, it's not as vivid as your volcano, but, um, but it's a similar sort of, of argument.
2: What I do think you're completely right about, Idris, is it's easy to focus on the threat from a new thing, right, which AI is. Often we're primed to be a bit suspicious of new technologies and maybe underplay the benefits of them. So I'm absolutely convinced that there are huge upsides from AI for pharmaceuticals for drug developments, for example. I mean, if you, I know various people have rare diseases, and I'm really, really hoping that the algorithms get to work on on that. But at the same time, we perhaps downplay the risks from existing things. And you're right to underline the risk to next year's election from the existing thing, namely the fact that Donald Trump's overwhelmingly likely to be the Republican Party candidate. I think another point in your favor on this, which you made in your excellent piece with Arjun, is that after 2016, there were so many postmortems about Russian information and the effect that that had had on the election. And the studies that we've had since have all, I think, been very convincing on the point that it made basically no difference at all. Uh, in terms of the electoral outcome. So there's that. you know, as, as Charlotte said, America's just so polarized that it's incredibly hard to persuade anyone to change their votes, whether your information is real or whether it's fake.
1: John, I think you're right about people seeing the worst in in new technology. One of the delightful things I came across when working on this piece was a column in the New York Times published in eighteen fifty eight bemoaning the arrival of the telegraph and what it would do to society so i'm just going to read this excellent excellent dispatch Um, superficial sudden unsifted too fast for the truth must be all telegraphic intelligence does it not render the popular mind too fast for the truth 10 days brings us the mails from europe what need is there for the scraps of news in 10 minutes how trivial and paltry is the telegraphic column it's really really good and then he also at some point says that it will be a very great use cannot be questioned but how will its uses add to the happiness of mankind? has the land telegraph done any good has it banished any evil mitigated any sorrow um it's uh you know replace twitter with telegraph and you have uh something similar to how we talk about the world around us That
2: is really good and as you say I think representative of lots of people's attitudes towards new technology. Okay, we'll be back in a moment to hear from Senator Josh Hawley about his ideas for regulating AI.
0: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With
5: the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices.
2: Idris, as part of your reporting for this, you went and talked to lots of politicians and think tank people to try and get a sense of how they're thinking about AI and whether and indeed how to regulate it. One of those
1: was Senator Josh Hawley. Why were you keen to talk with him? Congress as a whole is a lot more concerned about AI and its potential impact on elections than a lot of the folks that we spoke to on Silicon Valley. And among those on Congress, one of the probably the most concerned, most vigilant on crafting some kind of regulation is Josh Hawley, who's the Republican senator from Missouri. Uh, so I wanted to talk to him about some of the ideas he's put forward for how generative AI ought to be regulated. And here are a few excerpts of our conversation with Arjun, who reported the piece with me as well.
4: Over a call from his home state, Senator Hawley told us why he's worried about the harms that AI could cause.
5: I'm very concerned. I mean I think that we're already seeing the potential for deep fake videos. We know that the sort of deep fake news I mean it isn't have to be that deep, right? I mean the fake news potential here is very high in terms of generative AI being able, being able to generate content that reads like a news story, that reads like a, uh, an AP story, you know, or, or any newswire
4: story that would could be totally fake, or 98% fake. Hawley and another senator, Richard Blumenthal, who's a Democrat, they've introduced a bill aimed at protecting consumers from AI. So it targets Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which removes companies' liability for content posted on their platforms. So Hawley and Blumenthal's No Section 230 Immunity for AI Act obviously would take that away, uh, hence the title.
5: This is making clear that Section 230 does not shield AI... Companies or companies that invest in AI, deploy AI, it does not shield them from liability. I think that is an absolutely critical place to begin. And I'd like to see the Senate take that up ASAP. There's no reason to wait. I mean, we should make it very clear that if Americans are harmed by AI content, either because it's fake, because it, it takes their their image and likeness without permission, contrary to law, because it's, it visits some harm upon them, they ought to be able to get into court and sue.
4: So Holly also has other ideas for how to protect consumer interests as AI progresses. To
5: me, one of the most important things we can do is immediately label all AI content. A consumer needs to know, much like warning labels on drugs, there needs to be warning labels that prominently warn folks that this has been generated in whole or in part by a machine. I believe there is a place to put guardrails in place at a governmental level, whether it's not targeting kids under a certain age, whether it's guaranteeing to artists and producers, the rights to have their content not scraped and fed into an AI model and spit back out without their permission. This is pretty basic stuff. I mean, uh, we're not talking here about uh, nitpicking every little development of this industry, but again, I think we want to make sure
4: that this technology is good for working people, is good for kids, Many in Washington, including Senator Hawley, feel that the government was too lax with social media. They want to do things differently with AI. Next week, tech leaders like Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk will attend a forum convened by Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer to discuss ways to combat the risks of AI.
2: it was interesting to hear Senator Hawley there talking about Section 230, which as uh, lots of our listeners will probably remember, is a law that Republicans got excited about at a certain point because they were worried that big social media companies, big tech platforms were censoring conservatives and Republicans, and they wanted to use Section 230 to stop that from happening. AI regulations and discussions about AI in Washington are at a different stage, and I'll are- are- colleague our excellent lexington columnist james bennett wrote a piece recently saying that because ai hasn't yet fallen into the usual sort of partisan threshing machine where there's a clear republican position and a clear democratic position there's actually quite a you know smart interesting cross party conversation going on in dc about what ought to be done here and also it's the case that most of the big AI companies are inviting politicians to regulate them. So did you find that to be the case as well? Did you find that actually this is pretty th- thoughtful and bipartisan to the extent anything is in Washington these days?
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I think senators and congresspeople of both parties are wanting to proactively regulate um, the this emerging technology and avoid the mistake that they made with social media or internet privacy generally uh, the last two battles in which uh, they were never able to agree on a set of standards uh, you know there still hasn't been agreement on on what uh, regulation ought to be in place and that's why the debate about section 230 has been going on ever since i think it was created in the 1990s and it hasn't been resolved i think that even though there are a lot of interesting bipartisan discussions ongoing at the moment, it is still somewhat hard to, for me to see that emerging into real legislation anytime soon. You know, Congress is going to be dealing with the shutdown debate that's going to take all the oxygen out of the room for a while. But there is also disagreement among Republicans about the extent to which these algorithms will need to be regulated. So one of the other senators that we spoke to for this piece was Todd Young uh, from Indiana, who's thought a lot about this as well. And although he shares uh, Senator Hawley's concerns, he expresses a kind of hesitation about doing the kinds of things that Hawley suggests, such as a licensing regime, because he's worried about the competition with China, uh, which is also developing its own generative AI algorithms. You know, one of the pieces that we have in our paper this week is about Ernie, which is the uh, most advanced large language model in Mandarin. So I, I wonder whether or not there will be uh, agreement on this. Um I think what you're going to see is a lot of executive action. So the Federal Election Commission is uh, examining whether or not politicians should have to label AI generated content in their advertisements, which strikes me as a good idea. They're going to be the voluntary agreements of the sort that the White House created as well. I think that we still might be a bit away from the sort of really kind of stringent uh, rules that are in place in China already at the moment, and uh, which Europe is considering in its own right.
3: So not surprising that regulators are interested in this. If you think back to the early days of the Obama administration, there was so much more uh, openness within Washington to the idea that big tech generally was just going to be a force for good. And the ties have completely turned now with so much attention and criticism of, of big tech generally from both sides of the aisle. And so it's not at all surprising that a technology that's as truly disruptive as generative AI would be attracting a huge amount of scrutiny. But I guess I was really struck by some of the recent research which you have laid out with Arjun Drees because it's now been some time, right, since some of these big, big misinformation campaigns were underway, that there's been time to analyze their effect rather than just wring our hands about them. There was analysis from Stanford of, of the Russian disinformation campaign, and it really showed that it had pretty much no impact on candidates' share of the vote. And there was a separate study published this year that looked at data from people's Twitter feeds and found that if they were exposed to lots of tweets from Russian bots, it really had basically no impact on their particular attitudes or on broad polarization. So that kind of goes, I guess, to support your general thesis, Idris, that these campaigns aren't having a huge impact in terms of electoral outcome.
2: Itrees, we heard from Hawley about some of his ideas for regulating AI. And so maybe I'm going to return to my tiggerish persona here. Normally, when you have new technologies, the choice that society faces is between let that technology flourish with all the risks and the benefits that that brings, or try and suppress it and then you lose, you know, perhaps you minimize the risk, but you also lose the benefits. It seems to me that here it ought to be possible to come up with a set of rules that covers deep fakes that doesn't stop pharmaceutical companies from discovering cures for cancer or MS or anything else. But uh, am I being
1: too optimistic about that? No, I think, you know, legal regimes adapt to technological innovations. I think the problem is that technologies advance so quickly that it laps the much slower process of of legal change. You know, you can imagine for instance that deep fakes are covered under defamation law and if you generate a deep fake of someone with the intent to harm their reputation that, you know, the existing torts allow you to, you know, make a claim in court and and to win money from folks. So, you know, there's an argument about that. And then if you were to actually open up Section 230 and get rid of the immunity that platforms have for hosting content that could be defamatory or otherwise illegal in other contexts, then then you maybe do have a way of addressing it. And of course that doesn't preclude one's ability to use the technology for for some good like you know, research and uh in all sorts of things. I mean I've I've found that Chat GPT is able to understand, you know, an article written by John Rawls and summarize it pretty well which is fairly extraordinary. So it it could be like a very useful tool and it's already being used um, especially kind of well in in software engineering and and sort of automating away some of the humdrum things that you have to write in order to make a, a program work. So I think it's already going to be fairly important.
3: Yeah, I agree, Adrienne. that it's going to have all kinds of impacts, some of them really positive. And as you've reported, the campaigns have articulated ways that generative AI can help them be more effective and more efficient in their messaging to uh, particular voters in emails and in other campaigns. But the thing that we'll see play out next year in real time is how fake news generated by bots interacts with lies propagated by real people. And always in any election, there is a battle of messaging, right? You're always talking about whose message is more effective. And in the coming election, what's so extraordinary is you have that playing out in an extreme way, both because you have an ability to create better fake news on a bigger scale and because you have real people who just have divergent views of the truth.
2: Well, let's leave it there for now. Idris has reverted to type and made a tiggerish case for Eorish reasons. And I I think I've gone back to being a bit more hopeful than I was at the start. Before I let you guys go, though, it's quiz time. And this one is AI assisted. We asked ChatGPT to write an obituary of Ronald Reagan in the style of The Economist. I'm going to read you extracts which are either from that or from an article actually published in The Economist on Reagan's death in 2004. There are three of them, and I want you to tell me whether this is The Economist or ChatGPT mimicking The Economist. Okay, question one. Only a fortnight from 70, when he became president, the one-time minor film actor often glazed over in cabinet meetings.
1: Um, that sounds like The Economist.
2: That is The Economist. One for one. Question two. His remarkable journey reflects not just the spirit of American exceptionalism, but also the power of perseverance and conviction. That's totally ChatGPT. That is ChatGPT, least two for two. Okay, example three, the Iran-Contra affair, in which arms were secretly sold to Iran to fund anti-Sandinista rebels in Nicaragua, remains a blot on his otherwise resolute leadership.
3: Resolute. I think that's ChatGPT.
2: That is ChatGPT. Three from three. You guys are not going to be replaced by the algorithms anytime soon.
3: Also, they had the adverb before the verb, which is an Americanism, not a Britishism.
2: Uh, It was the resolute leadership, which I think was the tell for me.
3: Yeah, that was bad too.
2: Well, that's it for this week. Idris, thank you for all your reporting. Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you. Thanks. This episode was produced by Harriet Noble and Stevie Hertz, with special assistance from Arjun Romani. Thanks, Arjun. Our sound engineer is Nicola Rofast A reminder that we'd love it if you'd take out a subscription to The Economist if you don't already have one. Economist.com slash USpod is the link to subscribe. You'll find that in the notes for this episode as well. If you like the podcast, then please do let people know and leave us a rating and a review. That helps more people find checks and balance. You can also get in touch with us by email if you'd like to do that. The address is podcasts at economist.com. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance next week.